Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the federal government has appointed a new chief nursing officer to help navigate a critical shortage of nurses across the country. Are we finally heading in the right direction? Will Afghanistan become the global safe haven for extremists? A new report raises some issues about that. And we get the latest research update from the International Workplace Group on the importance of flexible workplace. Wayne Berger, the CEO of Americans for International Workplace Group, will join us to talk about that. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting news yesterday. The federal government has now appointed a new chief nursing officer to help navigate a critical shortage of nurses, of course, right across the country. Uh, yesterday, Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos says that Lee Chapman will be giving advice on how the federal government can help fix the crisis in the nursing perspective. There are already a number of jurisdictions in Canada reporting nursing shortages, which is having an impact on the functioning of emergency rooms and other critical health services that Canadians need and deserve. So that's uh, that's the background on this. Uh, interesting perspective on this, and it's interesting to see just how the government is going to respond uh, to that information, and of course, what sorts of policies are going to flow from this. Uh, to talk about it, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. James Thiessen, Director of Health Administration and Community Care and Associate Professor uh, with the Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Good morning, Bill. First and foremost, what your, your reaction to the announcement from the federal government? Did you see this coming? Well, the uh, nursing associations have been um, pushing for this for a while. Canada did have a chief uh, nursing officer, and um, they've been pushing the prime minister to reinstate the position, and he delivered. So it's not that surprised, but it's, I think it's a great idea. Well, as do I, and I think a lot of other people do as well, and, and your point's well taken. Uh, this is not a new position. This is something that uh, that had been in place, and I guess it was about 10 years ago. Uh, they, they just basically dissolved it and said they had other priorities. But uh, uh, this is an idea whose time has come, I guess, given the current crisis that we're facing, isn't it? Yes, and I think it's really important to remember just how important nurses are to the healthcare system. Um, just some, some quick numbers, it's about... 450,000 licensed nurses in Canada compared to just over 90,000 physicians. So they're big players and they really deserve a, a, a seat at the table. And they really care about the um, supply and education and work conditions of nurses that um, do so much for our system. Well, and we've talked about that, you know, in in the perspective of COVID, of course, over the last little while, you know, our healthcare heroes and, and governments, of course, you know, shower them with platitudes. But uh, there's, the reality here is that uh, it's it's a profession, a vocation, I think it is. It's not just a job. It's a vocation. It takes a special kind of person to do that kind of work. Uh, but, uh, but but they've been overworked, overtaxed, and, and, and of course, here in Ontario especially, uh, I think there's an argument to be made that uh, that they're they're not paid to the degree that they probably should be compensated with so many other things. Are are they going to have that voice, and and is the government going to listen to that voice? Well, I, I certainly hope so. Um, as as we all know, that healthcare is primarily a, a provincial um, jurisdiction. Um, I think it's going to be helpful though to have someone at the um, federal level coordinating. Um, the nurses associations um, and nursing, I guess, positions across the country and also representing us internationally um, in the World Health Organization um, groups that, that uh, convene nurses together learning about best practices in other countries. So hopefully um, this voice um, 
will be heard at the national and even more so at the provincial level where the rubber hits the road so as it is. Yeah, as I've talked to, well, people in my profession, and you're absolutely right, it's nurses and, and doctors, of course, uh, that are working in primary care facilities and hospitals, mm -hmm. et cetera, uh, I, I've sensed a certain level of frustration, and I'm sure you've seen it too, doctor, over the last couple of years, uh, that maybe their voices weren't being heard. I know that, you know, the, the governments, both premiers and, and prime ministers and other, you know, ministers, et cetera, said, yeah, we're consulting with, with the experts. But uh, I, I don't know that there's been a whole lot of conversation or that there's much of a dialogue uh, with the frontline workers, the nurses and the doctors that are actually there uh, and, and expressing their concerns. And, and the, the, I think there's a feeling of frustration that, hey, they're not listening to us. So they're not even asking us in some situations like this. This, this sounds to me like this is going to be a bridge that, that could probably address that need. Let's hope so. And I think it's an important signal. Um, I, certainly governments are aware of the um, shortages and the uh, overwork that um, those in that profession are, are experiencing um, and all the stresses. And, and, we, and they're also counting on the nurses because, as you said correctly, Bill, it's a vocation. Despite all of this, they're showing up and doing the, the hard work that uh, we rely on and depend on for. So hopefully um, the governments will respond. Um, we have to remember too that it's off, off, in hospitals, it's about 60% of nurses' jobs are in hospitals, mm -hmm. but also with COVID showed how important the community care um, and long-term care was too. That's where the nurses are working as well. So they're not only in hospitals doing that good work for us. So hopefully um, governments will t um, pay attention, compensate them some more, and um, and also ensure there's a, a really good, um, solid supply of, of nurses and make that profession something that people really want to go into. Well, and, and rewarding. I mean, the, the, the job mm. itself, I guess, is its own rewards. But, you know, mm. compensation is a problem. Overwork is a problem. Mm. Uh, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, yes, yes, we're talking about nurses in hospitals, but uh, there are other elements to this. You mentioned long-term care facilities. And the other, of course, is, is home uh, care for an awful mm. lot of people. And, and, and that's a profession that, that needs some bolstering, too. I mean, I, I don't want to say we've taken them for granted because I think that's a, probably an unfair statement, but uh, <clears throat> we've never seen, I think, that profession and that vocation in such turmoil these days. I mean, when people are actually walking away from their job, I mean, no, I, that's, that's unfathomable for some people to understand that, that, that some nurses are feeling that much pressure and that much stress right now that they just say, I, I can't do this anymore. Yes, and it really is um, unfortunate, and, and, I'll, and I'm sorry to repeat myself, but to go back to the um, term nursing as a vocation, people go into that um, profession because they want to take care of people and contribute to um, the health of society broadly. I have a bias towards nurses, particularly my mom was a nurse and um, trained at Hamilton General, in fact, in the 40s. Oh, yeah. So, um, and I know that, that, that it's a particular um, character and women who are nurses, even long after they leave the pr profession, still consider themselves nurses. And that's, there's a, a state of mind that comes with it. And it's troubling to see people um, leave the profession now um, because of the conditions. So hopefully some of that can be fixed. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Ms. Chapman herself there, a veteran of, of, of uh, healthcare profession. She's been around. She's done an awful lot of things right now. Uh, she seems to me to be, uh, uh, 
just looking at her CV right here, a, a great choice for this to be an advocate for the nursing profession and, and basically uh, an added voice to the discussion about healthcare in this country. Yeah, and um, yeah, not only does she have lots of um, experience on the ground, so to speak, and in, in the institutions, but she also has a, a, a PhD in nursing. Um, now, I, I know some people will think that PhDs are maybe not the most useful um, uh, credentials, but I, I think it does show an ability to to understand kind of the, the deeper issues and martial um, research and evidence to understand situations. And those type of skills will really um, serve her well. And as well, it seems she also seems to be a very good communicator, which is going to be essential for nurses really have to, but basically they're getting a really good representative um, for their profession at the national level. You mentioned, uh, and rightly so, that you know, in, uh, when you look at our, our setup here in Canada, and healthcare is essentially is, is a provincial responsibility, uh, but the federal government does oversee it. You know, as in case you know, Mr. Minister Duclos himself, who made the announcements yesterday. Uh, so there's an oversight, an oversight, oftentimes to say, well, look at the federal government doesn't have anything to do with this; they just throw the money out there. But there are some important policy decisions that need to be made, and 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 this conversation that uh, that the minister talked about yesterday uh, about inclusion with everybody at the table is I think is going to be a key part in first of all deciding what our problems are I know some politicians are, are a little hesitant to use the word crisis but I mean we're at a very trying times in this whole healthcare system and and it it needs a rethink and maybe some fresh voices and some fresh ideas you're absolutely right and and nurses bring a different perspective let's be frank um, our the system is largely um, governed and the main decisions are made by physicians. Mm -hmm. um, they have the power in the system. And, but, but as I said, nurses are the largest group of professionals in the system itself. Their perspective is a little bit different than uh, physicians. They, they obviously work towards the same goal, the goals, of course. But, you know, they're, they're more about, um, they're real linchpins in the system in terms of assessing patients and monitoring them they're closer to the patients, let's be frank, than most physicians are. And so it's important that they bring that um, perspective to the table. And also to remind um, policymakers, including those that fund healthcare, that uh, there has to be some, some money in the pool for them to um, properly hire and employ and um, employ the good nurses that are needed to keep the system going. Well, and the crisis we're facing here in Ontario, uh, I, I think, is is probably characteristic of what you've just talked about here. Uh, you know, where we've, we've got, as we just mentioned, some people that are moving out of the profession altogether. Others are going to private sector, uh, you know, and, and, and basically they're, they're being paid more for this. So there's there's got to be some equilibrium here, I think, because I think we're proud of and I think we should be of our public health system. But uh, it's only going to work as well as the people that are actually in the system right now. And, and when the people in the system are saying, look, this is not good enough anymore, uh, I think we have to consider, you know, maybe maybe it's time to do that. And compensation is a big part of it. I know, you know some people get a little frustrated when you, we just talk about money. But, you know, the, the, the money that you make, uh, your, your level of comfort, you know, in that, the stress levels that are going on here right now and, and the support services for, for that sort of job, I, I think have to be part of the consideration here. And, and, and as I mentioned, it's a kind of a rethink. I think that uh, provincial governments and certainly the federal government is going to have to think about right now and say, how can we retain 
these people. I mean, I think you and I have talked about in the past about how, you know, we're going to recruit nurses and that's, that's wonderful. And, and the governments have, I think, done some interesting things, some rather interesting initiatives, you know, vis-a-vis, uh, you know, compensation for, you know, the, the education costs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But hanging on to the people that are already in the profession is, is something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but it's key, isn't it? Well, yeah. And, and obviously you're, you're right. Money is a big piece of this. And, um, let's, Let's be frank, um, <clears throat> you know, in any other um, industry, if you don't have enough workers, you have to pay them more. Um, so there's, that's pretty simple economics. Yep. And, and, and I think it has gone, it has, um, it's, it's very apparent in the um, healthcare sector that um, the, the nurses, again, that are key to keeping the system going, uh, need some more, need some more um, compensation. Better conditions, but another piece, though, is their mental health, um, mm-hmm. which you sort of spoke to the stress. Um, there are some initiatives uh, around um, addressing the mental health um, challenges faced by uh, providers, pr- particularly those in the front line. So there are there is some movement along in that front, but I think we really have to um, accept that this is an issue and um, between money and mental health and general conditions, try to make it as, as good as possible. Recognizing it's a tough profession. It's, it's never going to be easy, particularly for those on night shifts and weekend shifts. That's part of the industry. We have to pay them, though, to do that when, um, when we need the care. Well, and as you mentioned, I mean, you know, with, with your mom in, in the profession, so you, you saw firsthand what happened. And the nature of the job, I think, is something that, that needs to be discussed and needs to be factored into these sorts of things. I mean, these are people that, that see life and death on a, on, a, on a consistent basis, day in and day out. Uh, people that are suffering, people that need help and assistance, uh, mental health and physical health, etc., and dealing with certain physical conditions. Uh it, it's got to be draining, doctor. I think, you know, at the end of a shift, some, I, I'm surprised sometimes that, that they have the, the mental wherewithal to go back to work the next day. I mean, it, it's, I know we've all got jobs and we've all got our own levels of stress, depending on what it is that we're doing. But to deal with that sort of pressure and that sort of stress day in and day out like that, it's, it's got to be taxing. It certainly is. And, it, and, and it's a special character that can, can do that. There's a... Um, I don't know how, what the, the best term is, maybe a, a gentle toughness, a core of um, toughness in the best sense of the word. Resilience is probably a better term that nurses have. Um, there's, there's a very practical orientation, uh, recognizing the challenges they face and all the situations they face. Um, they're remarkable people, and I hope the profession or the governments um, continue to recognize, but even step it up a bit more to make sure the sector can continue to attract those special types of characters and keep them um, because as to your point it's um, it's it's one thing to train them but if they're if they're just leaving the, the profession because of all these strains um, the system's going to be in trouble and arguably right now we're we are sort facing a at least a short-term crisis and 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 it's a it's a mathematical equation in some contexts, isn't it? It's one yeah. thing to say, okay, we're gonna you know we're gonna fast track foreign trained uh, nurses to come in here, and 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 that's that's a good news story. And we're gonna pay for the education of other people that want to get into the profession, and that's mm-hmm. a good news story. Uh, but they're not factoring in the number of people that are going out the back door and said this is it or retirements. I mean, you know, it's not just frustration. Uh, th- that's the evolution and the, the reality that's going on here. I mean, you don't you don't want this to be a zero sum equation here. You want at, we need more nurses, not just filling the gaps of people who have left the profession. 
yes, we do need them. And, and yeah, the um, training international nurses is a great idea. There are about 10% of nurses now are internationally trained. So that will help, but it won't um, be the full solution. Yeah, again, again, simply we just need these good people. And one thing it's important to point out too, that I'm you know, talking about my mom, when, when she was a nurse compared to now, the, the profession has changed quite a bit. In the past, nursing was a lot about keeping the patient comfortable. But now nurses have become much more skilled um, and sophisticated in the um, <clears throat> the types of things they have to do now. They're they're doing more supervision now because there are other um, providers such as personal support workers that may be supervised by nurses. Um, it, it's it's become a more important job in the profession as a whole or in the sector as a whole, and um, it's really important for policy levels at policy makers at the uh, federal and provincial levels to make sure that we've got enough of these good people doing the good work that we all rely on well we uh wish her all the best uh chapman all <laughs> the best in her new role here and uh, i'm sure she's going to hit the ground running on this and it's going to be fascinating i guess to watch uh, in the next uh, few weeks and months ahead as to uh, the kind of input that she's going to have and her assessment, I guess, of what's going on in, in some of the provinces uh, to try to mm. deal with some of these things. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And continue. Uh, good to talk to you. Okay. Uh, Dr. James Thiessen uh, from Metropolitan University in Toronto, of course, talking about the appointment of Lee Chapman as the, uh, uh, the, the, person who I think is going to be that voice for the nursing profession. And we've talked to people within the, the nurses associations and unions, and, and and we've sensed the frustration. And I know you have too. And a, a number of us that have act, had to access the, the healthcare facilities over the last couple of years, especially because of COVID and other situations like this, uh, and to see the, the stress that they're under right now. And it's 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 got to be part of the conversation. And, and they need to be a voice at the table, as do doctors. Uh, it's it's one thing to talk about, you know, the bureaucrats and the administrators sitting around the table trying to make policy decisions, but you've got to at some point listen to the people that are on the front lines because they're the ones that've got the most, uh, I think, uh, poignant input as to what's going to be happening here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada's domestic spy agency has warned the government. Uh, as a matter of fact, they did this last fall. Uh, warned the government that the Taliban's return to power in Afghanistan could increase the risk of religiously motivated extremism here in Canada. So what are we doing about it? Well, that's a good question. To talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Phil Gursky. Phil, of course, is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's a director at the University of Ottawa Security Program and a former CSIS analyst and author, of course, of a number of books uh, about security. Uh, Phil, always a pleasure. Hope you're doing well these days. Yes, it's always great to talk to you, Bill. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well. It's interesting this story came out earlier this week because it's kind of echoing an, an awful lot of the stuff that you've been talking about mm. uh, really since, I guess, uh, September of last year uh, when the United, the United States withdrew from Afghanistan, Canada uh, and, and others were watching, and, and, of course, our troops are gone as well. And uh, it, it took seemed like minutes for, for the Taliban to mm. take over control of the country once again. And there, uh, it, it was, I guess, natural to assume that there was going to be ramifications to this. And, and so this to report shouldn't really come as a surprise to anybody, I would think. Well, not at all, Bill. With all due respect to my former colleagues at, at CSIS, uh, 
this is about as predictable as the Leafs losing in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Sorry, can I say that on Hamilton Radio? I apologize. Oh, sure, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, everyone knew this, Bill, and, and this is what really worried me and bothered me when that when when the, the plan was announced last year to withdraw the final U.S. forces. Anybody who had been following Afghanistan, as I do peripherally, knew the Taliban were going to take over in a heartbeat, as you said. They've been carrying out attacks for decades in Afghanistan. The Afghan army certainly didn't show that it had the metal to... Uh, repel Afga- uh, the Taliban forces. So this is not really a prediction per se. We know that the Taliban are still a terrorist group. In fact, they're still a listed entity under Canada's public safety list of terrorist organizations. And the fact that the report says it could increase the risk of religiously motivated tre- extremism, which I hate the term, by the way, it means it's jihadism, it's Islamist extremism. This is not, it shouldn't be news to any Canadian at all. Well, uh, here's a, a quote. I get just a couple of line quote. This is from uh, uh, actually then Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan, and it was prepared by the Canadian uh, military intelligence. And they said, and this was, as you say, right after September when uh, the U.S. troops uh, withdrew, should Western forces withdraw from Afghanistan, and they did, uh, Taliban would likely decisively defeat the Afghan security forces and capture most major urban areas and reestablish Taliban control over most of Afghanistan. And, and it was interesting, yesterday I was watching some of the news coverage on this, Phil, and uh, a government source, they said, I didn't want to be named, and I can understand why now, uh, simply said, we knew this was going to happen, we just didn't think it was going to happen so fast. Well, in, in you know, since there was absolutely nobody there that was going to try to stop them, of course the Taliban are going to move back in. Absolutely. And, you know, there were people who were surprised at the rapidity with which the Taliban took over. I wasn't one of them. Mind you, Bill, I'm not a military analyst. And I, can't, I don't analyze military affairs. But I think, and I was talking to a young lady um, from uh, Europe just last week, one of, one of my podcasts, and she said she felt that people were, were waxing confident about the Afghan government, the Afghan military, to basically to save face. The decision had been made to withdraw. It was not a great decision, but staying wasn't a great decision either. And we had to put lipstick on this pig. And, this, and the lipstick was the the Afghan army has been well-trained from the Americans, from NATO, from Canada, etc. They'll be able to, to defend their country and, and keep it on the straight path. But I think a lot of people really knew in their heart of hearts that the Taliban would take over rather quickly. You know, what, six minutes versus six months, I mean, it's, we can go back and forth on that. But I don't think anybody should really have been surprised that this is the outcome. And, and you know, I just read a report, Bill, um, an American um, think tank says that religious freedom has been challenged in Afghanistan. Since well, well, no kidding, right? The Taliban are Islamist terrorists. As far as they're concerned, it's their version of Islam and nobody else's. And so, again, the fact that we're still analyzing this a year later, is it really speaks to our uh, inability or maybe um, the fact we don't want to recognize this for what it is. And this is exactly what happened in Afghanistan. Well, let's talk about the impact that it could have here in Canada. And again, this is kind of getting into into your wheelhouse uh, about what's going on and whether or not we're prepared for something like this. And and uh, and th- they talked about people that are going to go over there and be trained or influenced by Al Qaeda, if not necessarily physically trained, uh, and come back here and 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 sow the seeds of of terrorism and any number of different things. And and we've already seen that to a certain extent here in this country. Not to the you know, it's it's ebbs and flows but i mean when it happens once i, I know our listeners in london right now are just thinking right now about the tragedy of a whole family getting wiped out by mm-hmm. a, a guy driving a truck uh, not too long ago right near the mosque of course and uh, over in the, near the cherry hill district in london mm-hmm. i know you know the city quite well uh, yeah. and and it's happened in other spots as well so it's there uh is there an anticipation here that it might get worse now that the taliban have a stronghold back in afghanistan and basically a solid base to, from which to work 
Historically, Bill, there have been Canadians who have seen what happens abroad, whether it be in Somalia or in Afghanistan or Iraq and Syria, and they're inspired by it. So we know that there were upwards of 200 Canadians that fought with Islamic State in the middle 2010s. I mean, I wrote I wrote a whole book on Western foreign fighters in 2015. Mm-hmm. We've had terrorists that go fought with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We've had terrorists go fight with um, Al-Shabaab in Somalia. So this is what was as well, I think, documented. And there's no question that what happens abroad does have an effect on what happens here in Canada. They see the Taliban resurgent. They see that Al-Qaeda is resurgent. They see Islamic State's resurgent. And and again, what, what puzzles me, Bill, is uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to quote something else from the article that we're referring to. Yeah. And it says, quote, religiously motivated extremism inspired by groups like, like Daesh, meaning ISIS or Al-Qaeda, has taken a backseat in Canada's national security discourse due to the rise of what CSIS calls IMVE, which is really the far right. And and you and I have been talking for years about this, Bill, and, and you know, the jihadis never went away. Uh, yes, we have the far right problem. What happened in London may, in fact, have been a far right active extreme. We don't, we don't know yet. The, the trial has to be held. Mm-hmm. And these groups do feed against uh, one another. But the bottom line is, is that internationally, day by day, Islamist extremists, jihadis, carry out attacks around the world. So the fact that CSIS... <laughs> relegated Islamist extremism to a back seat puzzles me because when I was there and I, I left 2015 when, uh, from a counterterrorism perspective it was all Islamist extremism all the time because we had, of course we had Zahaf Bebo in 2014 we had the Toronto 18 plot in 2005-2006 and you know that the government can think that we can sort of down tools on the jihadis and, and devote all our resources to the far right which which demands resources no question about that indicates a, a poor understanding of the terrorist threat in Canada, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and and they admit that, yeah, it's still there. I think the phrase they use was a persistent threat uh, about right. religiously motivated extremism. Uh, but they're just basically saying that, you know, we can't do both. And and that's that's a little frightening that they make that kind of an admission. They can do both. And, and that's what, again, so certainly, Bill, when I left in 2015, there was a very sort of uh, peripheral far-right investigations that we were doing. We looked at the far-right guys in the 90s, Bill, and these guys couldn't organize a piss-up in a bar on a good day. They've since, they've evolved. There's no question the attack on the, on the mosque in Quebec City in 2017, whatever happened in London, etc. The, the point is we can do things uh, simultaneously. I mean, CSIS does other things besides counterterrorism. They do counterintelligence. They do counterproliferation. They do counterforward interference. So to say that your counterterrorism people can't walk and chew gum at the same time, to me, that's an insult to the women and men that work at CSIS. But to me, it's more indicative of a government that that basically intimated or maybe even told them directly, don't worry anymore about the jihadis. I want to focus all your, your counterterrorism resources on the far right. And that's simply, A, government interference in an intelligence service, which should never happen in the first place. And B, it, again, it, it points to the fact that CSIS has done many things simultaneously in the past. So let the security service identify the threats, investigate them, and put the resources where it's required. Is, is, we, we've talked about some of these instances, and you know there have been arrests and there has been some work done by our security forces, uh, thankfully, to try to uh, actually you know cut some of these things off before they actually get started. But we, we've talked in the past, Phil, about uh, people that go overseas and are trained uh, and then come back here and, and try to use those skills uh, in various ways. And, and I know what's happened in the States, it's happened here too. Uh, is, is that still going on? And is there a concern now because the Taliban is back in Afghanistan and, and governing them right now uh, and that we may see the, an increase in that? 100%, Bill. And, and as you said, you know, there's a, there was a plot that we worked on in 2010 um, called the RCP, called Operation Samosa, was a guy who fought in Afghanistan, uh, came back and, and, plat- and planted to um, 
he planned up to plant some bombs at a, at a repatriation ceremony in Trenton when the Canadian forces were coming back. So there's no question that Canadians have gone abroad and, and acquired skills. Canadians have gone abroad and carried out acts of terrorism in Somalia, in Iraq, in Bangladesh, etc. And I think that one of the concerns for the security services, in, you know, so CSIS and the RCMP, is how do you keep track of these people? And, you know, can you, for, for, you know, forbid them from leaving? That That's highly problematic under Canadian law, you know, freedom of movement. And what do you charge them with? And then if they're gone, how do you follow them when they're abroad? How do you get your intelligence when they come back? I mean, what do you charge them with? You, you have to investigate them at, you know, at infinitum until you decide what kinds of threats that they pose. And this goes to even a bigger issue, Bill, we've talked about. You know, what do you do about the Canadians that fought for Islamic State in the 2010s are now sitting in a refugee camp somewhere in Syria and want to come home? Uh, you know, do we bring them home? My answer is no. You should try them in Iraq and Syria where their crimes were committed. But there's a lobby group to bring them home and so somehow forgive them for what they've done. And and yeah, so it, it's a huge concern for the security services because if you have gone abroad, there's two things that happen. One is that your intention is much greater. I mean, you actually travel to join a terrorist group. And secondly, as you said, you acquire a skill set, whether it's bomb making or, you know, using a, a firearm to launch an attack. And that makes you a much more lethal person. So that definitely keeps your security services awake at night. And it, it's frustrating, and I think it goes all the way back to what you've talked about a number of times and written about, uh, is is lack of resources here at the Canadian. And I know that the Five Eyes have talked about this, and the United States and Australia in particular have uh, been imploring Canada to step up and, and, and increase that. And uh, I don't know if the federal government's listening. Well, part of it, Bill, and again, we've talked about this in the past, is the lack of an intelligence culture in Canada. We don't, we're not like the Americans and the Brits and even the Australians part of the five eyes that get intelligence, they give it the, the priority it warrants to give it the resources required. So that's one issue. And um, the other thing is that, you know, Bill, you and I are old enough to remember the Cold War days. And, you know, I, I worked mm -hmm. at CSE, the Signals Intelligence Organization during the Cold War. And we pretty well had one task, and that was the Soviet Union and its allies. It was pretty easy to go to work in the morning. Today, you've got a multiplicity of threats. We've talked about, we talked about the terrorist threat. We talked about what Russia's doing, what China's doing. We talked about foreign interference. And the thing is that we expect CSIS and the RSMP to do everything simultaneously, and they don't have the resources for it. They can do it if they get the money and the people, but it's, it's up to the government to say, yes, you need X number of, of bodies to do this and X amount of cash to do this. And if the government's not listening or doesn't think it's a priority, and, and the, other, the other thing is, in all fairness, Bill, there, there, there are multiple priorities around the cabinet table, right? Everyone's asking for money when you're a minister. Yeah. How do you decide from a national security public safety perspective what percentage of the pie goes to, to those agencies and how much do you dole out to other needs and requirements across the country? So it's not an easy decision to make, but there's no question. And, and I think our allies have looked at Canada and said, you're not pulling up, you're not, you're not pulling your weight, you know, whether it's defense spending or whatever. And I've heard anecdotally from some from ex-colleagues, Bill, that even in the intelligence realm, um, allies are looking at us and saying, what ever happened to the Canada that was competent before? It's not getting the important resources that it requires. I got a couple of minutes left here. I just want to focus on something else, if I could. Just a, a bit of a pivot here. Uh, big freer as, as, as well. And you're not going to the woods up in the Ottawa area uh, about Pierre Polyev, uh, who's probably going to be the leader of the Conservative Party in a few weeks. Uh, and a picture that was posted a little while ago of him shaking hands with one Jeremy McKenzie, uh, who, as you mentioned, security forces have identified as a, a member of one of these extremist groups. Uh, and, and they're making a big deal about this. Now, I don't want to talk about the photo itself, but we do want to talk about the group and about Mr. McKenzie. Uh, some people suggesting that this guy is a, is a known activist. Uh, you know, But you've done a lot of research about, as you mentioned, some of these extremist groups here in this country. 
talk to us about the level of danger. I mean, Mr. McKenzie himself, I guess, was basically saying, look, we're just a bunch of fun guys. I like to poke fun at, uh, and, and, you know, we've got some opinions, but we're not dangerous. Are they? Every assessment that I've seen, Bill, suggests that, you know, and Miss McKenzie is a part of this the writ large far right, which is a, a dog's breakfast of groups, Bill. You know, you've got some white nationalists, you've got some conspiracy theorists. There's a whole bunch of different angles to this. Every assessment that I've ever read, a credible assessment from Canadian intelligence agencies, says that the vast majority of these people are, do not pose a threat to national security. If there are those that harbor violent views or violent tendencies, those are the ones that we're worried about, and those are the ones that we're going to take care of. Remember what happened in Peterborough last yeah. two weeks ago, Bill, when a bunch of you know so-called QAnon conspiracy theorists tried to arrest Peterborough police. It was a comedy of errors. There was no violence. There was no threat of violence. So yes, the violent ones, I'm confident that CSIS and the RCMP are aware of and are monitoring. The rest of them, let's not give these guys more credit than they're due. Most of them are just useless wankers that have bizarre views. They don't don't pose a threat to national security or public safety. The ones that do, we're going to take care of them. Phil, as always, great to get your perspective and uh, to put things uh, in place for us. And uh, there's very troubling times. And, uh, and hopefully the message that uh, that you've been talking about for the last little while on your podcast and in the books you've written uh, is going to start resonating with some of the decision makers up there. Uh, thanks, as always. Stay well, my friend. We'll talk again soon. You too, Bill. Take care. Phil Gursky, of course, uh, Borealis Threat and Risk Manager and former CSIS analyst. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. New research has been uh, released uh, about flexible workplace, about you know what we call hybrid working, uh, something that has been well thrust upon a lot of companies because of COVID and because of the pandemic. Uh, but it's had some benefits uh, and some that might be weren't initially uh, concerned or thought of and that it was, it's a kind of a well as the report says a triple win for an awful lot of people and for companies as well uh, the research is uh, is done by a, a company that we've had on the program before uh, Wayne Berger joins us right now he is the CEO of America's for International Workplace Group uh, Wayne always a pleasure thanks so much for the time today oh thanks for having me Bill nice to be back on I'm fascinated by this report. I was reading this yesterday uh, about uh, about what's going on here and the benefits. And, and, you know, we can talk about stress and a number of other things on individuals or the lack of stress in hybrid working places right now. But as you guys have done with your research, uh, there's there's a, a real environmental win-win here for, for this hybrid model that many companies are adopting now, isn't there? Oh, yeah, you're right, Bill. What's interesting is we're starting to see some, some dramatically benef- beneficial opportunities for companies to take advantage of flexible working and help promote an improvement to the environment. So uh, over the last number of months, as, as, as you're aware, and as we've been speaking about, we've continued to see the trends that are taking place within Canadian workplaces, companies, and workers in this movement post-pandemic towards flexible hybrid working. A couple of stats that have called out uh, that, we've, that we've seen ongoing is 88% of employees are looking to work in a hybrid or flexible way. And 90% of companies are saying, okay, that makes sense. Um, let's institute some kind of flexible or hybrid working policy. And, and what's interesting is there have been financial benefits that we've reported on by helping people reduce the, the day-to-day commute to and from a traditional office. There have been um, work-life balance benefits that we've seen reported on as well. As a matter of fact, in this study, 84% of hybrid flexible workers have said that a hybrid working practice that has been implemented in their company has improved the work-life balance. But what's interesting is now we're starting to see this great environmental benefit. So 
what we're seeing now is two-thirds of Canadian employees who used to commute to an office five days a week or more prior to the pandemic has shifted. So now um, we've seen a 36% reduction in workers traveling to and from an office five days a week. So that number now is is roughly about 43%. So less than half of Canadian workers are actually required and are going to an office five days a week. And what that's doing is it's creating a great benefit towards the environment because it's helping greatly reduce the amount of CO2 emissions that are created through that day-to-day commute. So there's a, a really wonderful opportunity here for companies to make a simple decision and greatly impact sustainability and achieve their sustainability goals. And and this is backed up by by UN numbers. I mean, this is this is a global yeah. phenomenon that's going on because it's going on all over the world these days. Uh, and and it, it really, when you think about it, Wayne, it makes sense. As I was reading this yesterday, of course, we're not driving cars as much. Of course, there's this, it's going to have a positive impact on, on environmental issues and on climate change, which is you know one of the main concerns that we all have these days. We've seen uh, the net effect of not doing these sorts of things with wildfires mm-hmm. and, and and radical weather and things of this nature. We're we're kind of helping ourselves by staying home, aren't we? Well, you're exactly right. We're working closer to home because that's one of the big pieces. Because one of the misnomers is this idea of everybody wanting to work from home, but only only 11% of Canadians want to work from home five days a week. But what's interesting is this point around the the environment, Bill, that you mentioned, it is such a common sense approach. And and frankly, I'm really excited as, as a leader, and we're excited as an organization to see the UN take such a position. The fact that the UN has taken the time to highlight that hybrid working is now being heralded by the United Nations in their sustainable development plan uh, as one of the six major ways that we can address and truly fight um, this, this, this change, this climate change issue that we're addressing, um, I think is really powerful because it sends a message to the globe and obviously workers and organizations that there is a simple way that you can address it. You know, you can help support a profitable organization. You can give your employees what they're looking for, which is a healthy work-life balance. And while you're doing all those things, by simply making some changes to when people are required to come back to a traditional office, that minor, that simple, simple common sense change can really help achieve our sustainability goals, both in Canada and around the world, which I think is really powerful. Well, and there's another takeaway here, too, that I'm glad you included in the report. Uh, For those of us that have been working remotely for the last little while, and as you say, some are adopting hybrid models right now, uh, you don't spend as much money. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, oh. we talk about the, the price of gasoline. Thankfully, it's going down again. Uh, but, I mean, it skyrocketed a couple of weeks ago, of course, and it was ridiculously high. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're not driving, it didn't have that much of an impact on you. And and, and that's that's a, a personal financial saving to the employees themselves. Well, you think about the savings when it comes to your point around the commute. So the savings in gas, the savings in transit, also all the savings that are attributed to the money that an employee spends when they're at an office, right, as well, all, all those elements right, right through to the costs associated with your work clothes, et cetera, all, all those pieces play into, play into it. And, and these are after tax savings that no doubt in this, you know, still the state of, uh, of high inflation, July dropped down, 
But prior to July, June, we we're at 40 year highs, right? And, and people are still feeling it. Gas has obviously started to see a, um, a material reduction, but you still see the impact on people's grocery bills and, and, and their other traditional costs with interest rates going up. Um, there is great savings. And, and a recent study came out, um, which was, I think, a really great takeaway in which Canadian workers, by instituting a hybrid or flexible working policy, companies have the opportunity to save $13,000 per employee when it comes to instituting instituting a hybrid working policy. That that helps companies save money by helping shift their real estate costs, and it helps employees save money by reducing um, all the costs associated with traveling back and forth and working out of a traditional office every day. Let's talk about that aspect. That's what I love mm-hmm. about the research you guys do, by the way, because you look at both sides of the issue and you try to, to mm-hmm. get a, a wholesome picture of what's going on. Uh, if if we had had a discussion three, four years ago, uh, Wayne, and said, you know, to, to, to businesses and to, and to business owners and said, you know, employees working from home, hybrid working place, I, I would venture to say probably 85, 90% would say, no, 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 no. Productivity will go down. They'll slack yeah. off. Uh, we, we just can't do that. Well, we were forced to do it because of what happened with mm-hmm. COVID, of course. Are they embracing this now? Do they see that, hey, this is not such a bad idea after all? So what's interesting is I would say some are and some aren't. So no doubt you, we see in the headlines, some organizations or you know big iconic leaders are calling out in situations where they're asking some people to come back, come back to the office uh, full time or partial time. We're seeing some organizations say if they're going to continue to move towards hybrid and flex. The headlines are really driving a lot of message. But what's interesting, if you look at it structurally, um, as I mentioned, about 85 to 90 percent of companies are instituting flexible working policies because for a couple of reasons why they see the they see the financial opportunity in terms of savings. And they also recognize, look, we were able to be productive and we were able to help support our team members and what they're looking for, which frankly, Bill, at this point is, is comes down to as simple as eliminating a commute. This is what this is where we're at now. An opportunity to say, look, it doesn't make sense to travel every single day, five days a week in long commutes that are unproductive and costly when we can ask people to come back to an office when it's very purposeful, when it makes sense to come back together, whether it's for a a team meeting, a town hall, a meeting with their boss or a meeting with client. Companies are really starting to shift towards this purpose-driven environment where People still come together to congregate when it makes sense physically. But the reality is a lot of teams are now geographically disparate. If you think about prior to the pandemic, many companies hired people, depending on the type of role, to be based where they operate. But now because of the pandemic, progressive organizations are saying, look, there are roles where we can hire people out of the city, out of the province, sometimes out of the country. They can be incredibly effective. They can achieve their goals. And they don't necessarily need to physically be beside each other. So, but, and I'll add one last piece. There is an ongoing pushback, almost revolution from, from workers. And the latest example are the, are, are the employees of Apple who have joined together and have sent an open letter to Tim Cook and the executive team pushing back, Bill, on the hybrid working plan that is being rolled out that's apparently being rolled out here in the first week of September. They've gone to their to their leadership to say, look, remote working works. During the pandemic, we were able to, as employees, 
achieve the results you asked us to do. And we doubled our market cap during that period. Why are we being asked to do something differently now? There is a real pushback that we're seeing from employees in some of the largest organizations where they're not looking to work completely from home. What they're looking for is choice, flexibility, and empowerment. And the best organizations are modeling their working policies and their workspace to support that. Now, I'm going to guess that you were not surprised to hear that story about Apple, though, Wayne, because you did a survey of somebody a year, year and a half ago that we talked about that really reflected that, where a number of people said, look, if my employer doesn't offer me that choice, I'm leaving. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to go find some place that will do that. So, you know, it, it's it's kind of digging your heels in. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's as you said, shown us that, hey, this can work. And, mm-hmm. you know, for the companies that are going to say, no, 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 we're going to go back to the way things were before the pandemic, uh, you got to ask them, are they not paying attention here? Or, or, or you know, are they going to go back to, you know, the what some would consider the, the bad old days as opposed to a new and modern way uh, to do business? It's, it's going to cause quite a discussion and quite a debate, I would think, in some workplaces. Well, it, it, it's, it's going to cause a debate and a discussion. It's also going to cause those organizations to lose good people. And, and that's what we're seeing today. So... Today in Canada, 43% of workers are, will leave their current organization if they do not have the ability to work in a flexible way. And, and part of it's because what they're asking for is trust and common sense. So those individuals will make the change and they will move to an organization that gives them the ability to be trusted and to work in a flexible way. And so that is taking place today. So for the 12% of organizations that are unwilling to adopt and embrace a flexible working policy, they, they will lose great people and they will struggle to hire great people. That is absolutely happening right now. And what's interesting, Bill, is it was happening prior to the pandemic. So prior to the pandemic, 50% of the global workforce was working from somewhere other than their traditional office at least one to two days a week. But the pandemic had greatly accelerated this whole work remotely, work from home movement, as as you mentioned earlier on. And, and people are coming back towards that now saying, look, we were very effective, we were very productive, and I really value being trusted while I achieve the goals that you've laid out for me. So if you're unwilling to give me that opportunity, then then I'm going to look elsewhere. And, and, the, and what's interesting is you're going to see this continue, Bill, over the next five years. And the reason why I say the next five years is Companies are asking, some companies are asking the people to come back to an office. Why? Because they have a lease that's still in place for those next five years. But 66% of leases are coming up for expiry or renewal in the next five to seven years. And we're starting to see this now where companies that have a lease that's coming up for expiry renewal, well, they're doing a few things. One, they're reducing the amount of space that they need because the reality is they know that everybody's not coming in every single day. And two, they're shifting their location to what we call a flight to quality. So they're actually looking to move from their current location to a better building, knowing that they need less space and knowing that they're going to design it differently, where they're going to design it with more collaboration space. So that way, when they bring their people back in, there's high value space that they're going to be able to use for the moments that they're back in. So, so today, the largest percentage of leases have not come up for renewal or expiry. That will be happening. And I can assure you, as that happens, this is where organizations and leaders will take a look to say, okay, 
What space do we need? How, how does our real estate need to complement what our work style is? That will be ongoing. It's a, I know we're just about out of time here, but I guess what facilitates a lot of this stuff too, of course, are the technical advancements that have happened. I mean, yes. eight nine years ago, you know, well, you, you know, we need we need eyes on each other. Uh, you yeah. know, we can't just do conference phone calls all the time. But I mean, how many platforms are there now? Zoom, uh, you know, Teams, all sorts of places like that. Some guys gonna look at. I'm not going to drive downtown Toronto and have to pay to park and go upstairs for a one hour meeting. I, I'll Zoom you. I'll see you in twenty minutes. That's all there is to mm -hmm. it. So it's starting mm -hmm. to work. Uh, fascinating stuff. And and as always. Wayne, you guys have got your finger on the pulse. A great work, of course, by your organization. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. It's a pleasure, Johnny. Thanks for having us, Bill. All the best. Take care. Wayne Berger, who is the uh, CEO of America's for International Workplace Group. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.